Romans chapter 6. I'm a Wisconsin boy and I don't care for the snow. I don't know what, I don't know what my problem is, but it is good to be here and I appreciate each of you making the effort to be here this morning. Romans chapter 6. I've been coming to the Holiness Conference since 1997. Was so moved and stirred with a kindred spirit in reference to things that God was doing in my life at that time that uh, I have found this to be a place of refuge, a place of encouragement, a place of conviction, a place of life-changing decisions. Very thankful for what God is doing through Falls Baptist Church and Pastor Van Gelderen, and I want to express appreciation to them for doing this every year, year after year. I know there's great um, effort, a lot of work that goes into it. I'm a little bit, um, and I don't say this superficially, I'm not really trying to be anybody this morning, but I'm, I'm really humbled by the privilege of teaching Romans chapter 6. I've had the opportunity to go through the book of Romans, I, I don't know how many times, verse by verse, probably about 20 times now in teaching mode, and I, I am absolutely humbled every Every time I see a college young man or young lady's countenance change in the classroom, and it's usually somewhere in Romans chapter 6, 7, or 8. I remember one young man, we were in Romans chapter 7, and the Apostle Paul said, it's no more I that do it, and he was talking about sin, and he was properly identifying his position in Christ. He said, it's no more I that do it. And I saw the countenance of a young man change, and he walked out of that classroom. It was right before lunch, and I wasn't able to finish the story, so to speak. And he walked out of that classroom, and he was jumping in the air, and he's kicking his legs. I can't sin. I can't sin. I can't sin. Pastor Van Gelderen was coming the other way. He said, young man, you can too. He said, no, I can't. I can't sin. I can't sin. I thought I, I could see it. In the BCM Times, student expelled for not sinning. <laughs> Mark Twain has been quoted in various ways, but a couple of times he was reported to have been dead or thought to be dead. So he thought he better put an article in the paper. It was June 2nd, 1897. The rumors of my death are exaggerated. <laughs> I'm saying to you this morning, the rumors of your death are not exaggerated. Praise God, you are dead. It's not a rumor. It is a fact. Page 77 in your workbooks. I want to relate some of the principles that God has been teaching me over the past 30 years, what I consider, and I know you've heard this terminology, pilgrimage or my personal journey, to know Christ and walk in some measure of victory. The title that I chose deliberately for this session, Walking in Christ, Dash, walking in victory was on purpose. It's not Christ, apostrophe, S, victory. We know Christ has the victory. 
But to walk in Christ is to walk in victory. There's not a person that has ever sinned when they were in Christ. I'm not talking about salvation. I'm talking about how you live. A person has never sinned in Christ. That's what 1 John chapter 3 is about. In Christ, you cannot sin. If you sin, you're not in Christ. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship. God's desire is that we would learn to walk in Christ, and walking in Christ is to walk in victory. My first exposure to the Spirit-filled life was in college. It's amazing the things that I remember hearing preached. I was in church all my life. I think I was probably born in the church nursery. It just seems that way. But uh, um, church all my life, but I, I honestly do not remember. Though many things I do remember hearing as a young person and as a teenager in preaching, I do not honestly ever remember a message on the Holy Spirit or being filled with the Holy Spirit until I got to college. And, and at that time, we heard men speak about their experience, sometimes the experience of others, but the Spirit-filled life and the reality of it. Some who preached that reality, it almost caused you to doubt the validity. But others like John R. Rice, Tears running down both cheeks. You knew it was real. You knew it was real. At the same time, the pastor of the church where I was going and serving on extension was going through a booklet about the spirit-filled life and diagrams to help us visualize how it could be a reality. And when we, I should probably say, I finished that course on Sunday nights in that church, I had no more clue than before how it could really be true. To make matters worse, young men in college hearing the preaching and being surrounded by the messages on the spirit-filled life were going home for a weekend. They were locking themselves in a closet. They were going out and laying on somebody's grave, and they were coming back claiming that they were filled with the Spirit, but we lived with them in the dorm. And it just didn't seem real. What we are looking at today is what I would consider a four-step process to getting a hold of the reality that we can walk in victory. And I don't claim to be all that I need to be, far from it. I was somewhat amused <laughs> to hear the story about the dogs. I had my own experience just a, two weeks ago tomorrow. It was Thanksgiving Day. I'm not going to tell you what mine was. <laughs> I'll just say that I was ready to take a computer tower on my desk and throw it through the window. And you're laughing, but it ain't funny. I was irritated. And then I was broken. Because that flesh is so ugly. And God wants us to know that we can have victory. So becoming aware of the Bible promises, as I began to think and I heard preaching and I just, I just wasn't convinced that 
we were really hearing the whole story, or at least I wasn't understanding it. In a verse, the, the first verse that I remember, and I was already in the ministry at this point, but the first verse that I remember looking at, because I had fallen into disillusionment. I'd fallen into a fatalistic mindset of the Christian life that there was no possible way that a Christian could realis- realistically practice victory. But I read Romans 6, 6. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him. Couldn't get around it. It's a fact. That the body of sin might be, no grammarian, but I understood it was a possibility, but not a guarantee. But still, it gave me hope that the body of sin, the old man is crucified, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. God said it, and I wanted to believe it. But it seemed so unattainable. More recently, I realized that verse 7 went with verse 6. For he that is dead is freed. It's not a suggestion. God's not having conversation. He that is dead is freed from sin. And I saw these verses and many others are listed in your book. The purpose isn't to talk about them or dissect them. The point is I saw verses that said something totally contradictory to what I was living. And I'm saying to you the first step in experiencing victory, spirit-filled life, walking in the light, walking in fellowship, abiding in Christ is to believe it's possible. And I don't want to go on a tirade of things that I've heard and things that have been preached, but that is what, where I was in 1997 when I came to the conference here. I was tired of hearing preachers get up in their intellectual theology and doctrine talk about things that really didn't seem to matter. I wanted God to change my life. It's like people were afraid to talk about what God really said. And so I'm asking you this morning with me to ask yourself, have you embraced the promise of victory? Roman number one, page 79. Have you embraced the promise of victory? I summarize verses 1 through 10, and I'll say honestly with you, I've taught through Romans chapter 6 many, many times. I've never been satisfied with an outline, and the outline you have in front of you is, is one, the one that I'm most satisfied with, and it's brand new. But I think Romans chapter 6 is better taught without an outline, but for the sake of structure, I, I, I thought we should have one. The promise of victory, circle it right underneath there, admitting the possibility. That was the first step for me in my journey to come to a place where I could, by faith, embrace what God had said. I had to see the promise of victory and admit that it was possible. I had to put out of my mind things that I heard and some of the things that I had personally experienced and some of the disillusionment that I was going through and some of the fatalistic attitude that my melancholy personality caused me to embrace and say, no, wait a minute, God said it. It doesn't matter if I believe it, it's possible. Admit the possibility. 
I didn't say it very well in the notes there, but basically what I'm saying is Romans is a very sequential, very logical, very orderly book. And so in Romans, you, you can do this in some other places in the Bible, but in Romans you can definitely, if you get confused in the verbiage, because the Apostle Paul, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says a lot of things, and he kind of gets on this trail of, going somewhere, and, and sometimes in the middle of that, you almost come to an opposite conclusion, and so you sometimes have to go ahead and see where he's going. And in Romans chapter 6, 7, and 8, you come to Romans chapter 8, there is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. I'm telling you, that's where he's going. No matter what you understand about 6, 7, 8, that's where he's going. That's where he's going. And so in Romans chapter 6, we also can look ahead in the sections. And so this promise of victory, admitting the possibility, I thought it might help us in each section to see where the Apostle Paul is going. Romans chapter 6, for example, verse 17, he says that we have the ability to be servants to, to, to sin. He says, in the past we were, in fact, servants to sin, verse 17. But in verse 18 we read, we have been made free. From sin and are the servants of righteousness. I used to look at that verse and say, How is that possible? Listen, folks, God is telling you that in the same way you were a bond slave to sin. How many of you how many of you have been there? Come on. <laughs> Every one of us have to raise our hand, don't we? You know that you've been a bond slave to sin. How many of you are absolutely as confident that you are? now made a bond slave to righteousness. Not a theoretical possibility, a reality. In chapter 6, verses 20 and 21, the apostle Paul says, what was true, we were the servants of sin. In verse 21, we, we read that before we were saved, we had fruit that caused us to be ashamed. Have you been there? Ashamed. But verse 22, look at what it says. States very clearly, but now being made free from sin. Again, a present reality and become servants to God. And the end result is you have fruit that you're not ashamed of. In fact, it manifests his holiness and proves that you have eternal life. Wow. So if I take Romans chapter 6, admitting the possibility, the first 10 verses, I look at verses 6 and 7, and to me that is a tent stake. That is something that keeps my theological tent from blowing in the wind because Romans chapter 6 seems to me in verses 1 through 10 where God is going with it is verse 6, knowing this, that our old man is crucified. That tells me there's a possibility. That tells me I can claim by faith his promise that victory is possible, knowing this, that our old man is crucified, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin, for he that is dead is freed from sin. Nail it down. You may or may not understand verses 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, but I think verses 6 and 7 are clear. So as I look at this passage of Scripture, I... State it this way, a probing question. The key word, obviously, is knowing. Knowing is truth. It's fact. 
God is not asking us to apply blind faith. He's giving us something that our intellect can wrap its mind around. But as he enters into this discussion about the fact that we can know that our old man is crucified, he asks a probing question, and we must understand that this question is asked in light of the context of chapter 5, where he just told us that the exchange has been made. I said, Romans is a logical book. Chapter 1, he tells us what he's going to talk about. Chapter 1 through chapter 3, he tells us that we all need what he's going to talk about. We need salvation. We're all lost. Chapters 4 and 5, he tells us that salvation has nothing to do with us. It's completely in Christ. And chapter 5, verses 15 through 21, are some of the most amazing verses about the grace of God in our life. Free gift. Gift of grace. And the point is this. If you don't see Romans 6, verse 1, in light of what he just said in Romans chapter 5, you missed the point. What then? Having received God's grace, what then? Having been saved by God's grace, what then? Crying out to God because you knew you couldn't save yourself and you received his free gift and that free gift came by grace. What then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. If you access grace to deliver you from sin's penalty, should you not be able to access grace to live in victory? That's the whole point of that. So the probing question is immediately followed by a powerful declaration, God forbid, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? He's saying, you died, the Adam life is gone. Christ is alive in you. Why would you, having access grace to be delivered from the condemnation of sin, not access God's grace to be delivered from the habit of sin? A powerful declaration. And so then, in verses 3 through 10, I've called it a purposeful explanation. A person would say, what are you talking about, Paul? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? What do you mean, Paul, we're dead to sin? And he tells us something that I still do not fully wrap my mind around intellectually, but I do choose to accept it by faith. When I got saved, I was buried with Christ. It's not talking about water baptism here. This is talking about the experience of your salvation when you came to the end of yourself and you gave up on the hope that you could save yourself and you came to the realization that you were condemned in and of yourself and there was no merit in you. There was nothing in you that merited his righteousness and you knew that Christ had to save you or you could not be saved. You died that day. Doesn't matter how old you are, doesn't matter how much of you understood, God saw your heart and he knew that you were crying out to him in dependence upon his salvation through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, and you depended upon that. You died that day. You were buried with Christ. Therefore, verse 14, this purposed explanation, therefore, 
If you were buried with Christ, the really good news isn't that you died. The really good news is that you have resurrection power. You hear me, this is the key to this passage of Scripture. You have resurrection power. You may not understand it, but you have now resurrection power. You may not get a hold of it, but you have right now resurrection power. You may say, I know I'm going to heaven. I know when I die. I know a day is going to come when that grave is going to split open and be a testimony that I was God's child. God's saying, so live it now. Live it now. You've got resurrection power. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as, in the same way that you died, in that exact same way, this supernatural transaction has already taken place, the exchange has already happened, that like as Christ like as Christ, I'm not stuttering, I'm trying to get you to focus on these words as we move quickly. Like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. You've already got the power to do it. It's there, it's in you. It's available. So we died, verse 3, with Christ when we were saved, number one. We received the resurrection power of Christ, verses 4 and 5. But the real good news is not that we died, but that the power of Christ is in us. See, even so, we also should walk in newness of life. We're being invited to admit the possibility of victory. We're being invited to believe the promise of victory. A surprised Christian might exclaim, well, how is that possible that I can live in resurrection victory? Verse 5 gives us the answer, 4, because if we have been planted in the likeness of his death, we shall also be resurrection. Not doing injustice to the Scripture. Now, now this is a little bit technical, and I'm not a Greek scholar, but, but this, this word planted is perhaps the power of all these verses. It's not just buried like we've already talked about. It's not the baptism. It's not the immersed. It's God visualizing for you that you are the old seed Adam put in the ground, buried over, and that word planted doesn't just mean buried, it means planted for the purpose of springing forth onto new life. John chapter 12, verse 24, the Bible tells us that a kernel of wheat that falls in the ground, if it falls in the ground, it abides alone unless it dies and brings forth life. And what God is trying to help you understand that just like Jesus Christ fell into the ground and he died and he rose again and he brought forth life, you likewise have that same resurrection life in you. Adam was buried. He died completely. And when he died, then life came forth, but it wasn't Adam life. It was Christ life. It's there. It's there now. That word planted is a fascinating and it's a powerful word. If we have been planted, not just buried, not the old man just gone, but the new man has sprung forth into life. If we have been planted in the likeness of de his death, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Now, if you're like I was 20 years ago, I look at that verse and say, well, yeah, I know I'm going to heaven. But that's not the point of the verse. Even though it's in the future, that's not the point of the verse. The point of the verse is if you know you're going to heaven, then you ought to know you can live like it now. That is the point of the verse. 
You ought to be living like it now. And so again, the person might ask the question, well, how is that possible that I can also be in the likeness of his resurrection? And now he nails it down, which we've already looked at, because you know this. You know this, the old man is crucified. The old man is crucified so that you can destroy the body of sin. It's not destroyed, but it can be so that you no longer serve sin. For he that is dead, it's a fact. You may say, I don't believe it, I don't, or you may say, I don't understand it, but God's asking you to believe it. So we therefore can know the old man is crucified, verse 6. We can clarify these terms, and if I had a chance to redo the notes, I want to put all the things in there that I did because it's distracting, but I do want to state my confidence that the old man is everything described in chapter 5 in reference to Adam. Not everybody will agree with the fine nuances of my opinion concerning this. I've taught through Romans and my mindset, my thought concerning some of this stuff, the old man and the old nature and, and, and some of these things, you know, you think about it and you think about it and you think about it, but the bottom line is this, where there was once condemnation, there is now justification because the old man is dead. And you cannot have both. You know, we've all heard the story of the white dog and the black dog, and I'd heard that, and I always preferred the black dog on my left shoulder and the white dog to be an ultra-conservative um, right-wing um, Judeo-Christian value individual, but if there's a white dog and a black dog, it has nothing to do with the old man. The old man is dead. Now, I believe this is a theological truth that we have to get nailed down in our circles because of this. If you still have any of the old man, if there's any possibility of the old man rising up, if there's any possibility of the old man through the dirt and the ground still alive and breathing a little bit, you still have condemnation and you're going to die and you're going to go to hell because the old man brings condemnation. I'm not trying to be obnoxious. I'm trying to get you to understand something. It's the truth, it's the theological truth that convinced me the old man isn't just maybe dead, isn't just going to be dead, just someday would possibly be dead. The old man has to be dead or else I still have condemnation. So whatever the old man is, it's everything described in Romans chapter 5. And Adam, we were sinners. We know it. We had the sin. We did sin. And we had the condemnation of sin. And, and, and we were guilty because of our sin. But in Christ, we are justified. We no longer have the condemnation. We have life where there was once death. We have righteousness where there was once sin. We have a justification where there was once the condemnation. The exchange has been made is what I'm telling you. It's a done deal. And so then the new man is everything that Romans chapter 5 talks about that we have in Christ. It's life, it's justification, it's righteousness, and the peace that comes with it. I don't want to get into talking about the old nature and the flesh uh, because it's going to distract us. What we really want to focus on is verse 6 where it says the old man is crucified, Adam's gone, so that the body of sin might be destroyed. So look up here. I've got, I said I was going to put the old man over here. I've got the old man here. I've got the body of sin. And I've got the new man, Christ. And what I need to understand is he's gone, he's dead, he's crucified. The only thing I've got to deal with is this body of sin and how to deal with that, how to surrender that to Christ. 
That's all I've got to deal with. It's all I've got to figure out how to handle. And the Bible tells us that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. So the body of sin is that not the old man, but it's the vehicle, the means by which sin operates in my life. And so if you go down and look through the bullet points there, we have the habit, the practice of serving sin is broken in verse 6. Dead people are free from sin, verse 7. We can live the Christ life now, verse 8. Some take exception to what I just said in reference to verse 8. Now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Again, if you're like I was 20 years ago, 15 years ago, it doesn't matter when it was, I say, yeah, I know, one day I'm going to go to heaven. I mean, that's technically, I guess, what the verse says, but some who write on this, J. Robertson Nichols, for example, said, it is very doubtful that Paul is trying to make a distinction between heavenly realities and present facts. The whole point of him saying, if you know you're going to heaven, then you know that you have the power now to live for Christ. That's the whole point of this passage. If you know you're going to heaven, you got the power now. If you know you have resurrection life and you're going to raise from the dead one day, then you can live it now. That's the whole point of this passage. We don't have to wonder about it. We don't have to doubt. We don't have to be puzzled about it. And so Christ's resurrection is our source of victory. Look at verse 9. Knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. Why did he say that? Because he wants you to know that you're in Christ and Christ is in you. Therefore, there is no more dominion in you either, if you choose it. For in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Don't have time to look at it, but I love Hebrews chapter 10, verses 9 through 14, that phenomenal passage of Scripture that culminates with this idea all the way through Hebrews, Christ is better than, Christ is better than, Christ is better than. He's better than all the sacrifices. In chapter 9, he's better than all the sacrifices. Chapter 10, once for all. Once for all. And the only reason I put that passage of Scripture in there is because I love to read that passage of Scripture sometimes in our church before the communion service because it convinces me and helps me understand it's a done deal. Jesus Christ's singular sacrifice was sufficient to perfect them forever. That's me. That's me. And I don't have to wait until heaven to have the reality of that working in my life. So you have a diagram there, diagram A, and it's just a visualization. Some of you are visual learners, but you see that uh, before you're saved, you're dead in sin. There's no power of Christ in you. There's no spirit of God working in you. The word of God has no life in you. All you have is the flesh, and so you make choices totally based upon the flesh. You're dead in trespasses and sins. And I think we understand that we're controlled by the flesh. But the point in introducing that diagram to you now is to help you understand that that's where the battle is. The battle isn't with the old man. The old man is crucified when you get saved. He's dead. He's gone. But you still have the flesh. So we notice that a promise of victory is not a guarantee of victory, yet it is imperative. I'm asking you this morning, and I'm glad young people are in here because there was a time in my Christian life, and I've probably only transitioned this about the last 15 years, there was a time in my Christian life teaching high school Bible class for 30-some years now. I never talked about the Spirit-filled truths because I didn't think they could get it. 
Now in our elementary chapel, I'm talking to kids, you can be filled with God's Spirit. You can surrender to God's Spirit. I'm telling you, children, you got flesh. And your flesh wants to disobey your parents and your flesh wants to fight with your sister. But I am telling you, if you're a Christian, you got the Spirit of God in you. And you can ask God to give you power and to give you victory over that deception, those times that you've been lying to mom and dad about stuff. You can ask God to give you victory over your laziness if you didn't do your schoolwork last night. God can help you. And God can help us. And so... We've got to admit the possibility. Are you there? I'm asking you this morning to make decisions through this presentation. If you are here this morning and you've never truly embraced the possibility of victory, I'm asking you right now to bow your head before God and say, God, it's true. You said it, it's true. Because you'll never get anywhere until you admit that. It was a struggle for me to admit that God said victory is possible. Got to start right there. So then we have in page 82 the principle, what I call the principle of victory, and it's what we've already talked about, the principle of victory. And notice right below it, the real point is we need to be able to access the power. And so what we're talking about is resurrection power is in us. That's the principle of victory. Christ's life is in you. And that's really just basically verses 11 and 12. Likewise, consider it to be true. And you know that these words have been keyed in on in the book of Romans chapter 6. You need to know, first of all, that the old man is dead. But secondly, you need to consider it to be true. No appeals to your intellect. God's saying, I'm not asking you for blind faith. You can think this through. But now you have to embrace it by faith. You have to do exactly what you did when you got saved. I don't know how to explain this to you, but I remember precisely at a conference, holiness conference back then, sitting here and saying, do I have the guts? It's a farm boy way of saying, do I have the faith to let go and let God? I was raised all my life with this mindset, you got to try harder, 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 you got to try harder. More discipline, more accountability. And listen, I'm in favor of discipline and accountability, but you'll never be spiritual through those things. And I had to come to the place where I was willing to say, God, the principle of victory is there, and it's access the same way salvation is. I've got to say, I can't do it, and you can, and you will, because you promised. It's a faith word. Reckon it to be true. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves. What did he just get done doing? He just got done talking about Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, seen of above 500 witnesses at one time. Why was the resurrection of Christ so important? Why did the apostles preach the resurrection of Christ? Because it's what changed their life, not just because they saw it, but because they had the resurrection power in them and they got a hold of it. And I think we miss that sometimes. We think, well, they just saw the red. No, no, they understood. If he rose from the dead, I've got the power in me. And they knew that they could live the Christ life. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal, physical, sentence of death bodies, that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Don't have to. You need to access by faith, through God's grace, the victory 
that is already available. The principle of victory, accessing the power. In Romans chapter 5, I want to introduce this here and we'll come back to it later if I remember. Romans chapter 5, we not only have the comparison between the Adam condemnation and the Christ justification, the Adam death and the Christ life, but we have some phrases that just absolutely excite me every time I talk about and actually talked about this in our church service on Sunday morning. But look at those words, starting with verse 15, and what I'm talking about is the comparative phrases. And I'll point it out once, and I'm not going to read all the verses, but in verse 15, but not as the offense, that's Adam. So also is the free gift, that's Christ. For if through the offense of one, that's Adam, many be dead, next two words please, much more. I'm asking you this morning, do you believe the much more of Romans chapter 5? If you are saved, God is saying to you, much more. If you know that you're dead in Adam, much more you have life in Christ. And I'm not just talking about in the future, I'm talking about right now. And so he just goes on with these comparative phrases. Verse 16, he talks about that free gift. And in verse 17, for by one man's offense, death reigned by one. Much more they which receive abundance of grace. And that's why verse 1 of chapter 6 and verse 14 of chapter 6 is saying you've got the abundance, abundant grace. Use it properly. Quit using it as an excuse to sin. Use it to access God's power to have victory over sin before you sin. And all the way through here, he talks about that much more. Verse 18, even so, by the righteousness of one. Verse 19, so by the obedience of one. Verse 20, much more abundant, uh, much more abound. And then verse 21, even so, might grace reign through the righteousness of Christ. Now, we're leading into a principle, another key principle I think is very important here. And this is this concept of grace. And understanding why Paul brings it up twice in Romans chapter 6, and it is for this reason, Christians, and we really need to hear this in this generation. You may glean something from grip of grace theology, abounding grace theology written in books, but it emphasizes the wrong side of grace. Grace is not best accessed when I have sinned and need God's forgiveness. Grace is best accessed when I'm tempted to sin and say, God, you can enable me. And that is exactly what Paul is talking about. What then shall we sin that grace may abound? Don't you get it? God gave you his grace. Use it when it will best benefit you. Why go through the shame of sin anymore? Haven't you had a life that you've been ashamed of? Haven't you been a slave to sin that you've been controlled by long enough? Why not access the grace before you sin? So, I think all of you, in light of Romans chapter 5, can easily identify with the Adam life, and you're confident. The question's there just before Roman numeral 3. You're confident. That's a faith word. You reckoned it to be true that you were a sinner, 
and you had to practice sin. Am I right? You're pretty confident of that, aren't you? That you were a sinner? You guys are looking at me like you don't know what I'm talking about. Okay, I'm confident. (laughs) I'm confident I'm a sinner. All right? Slave to sin because of Adam. Do you get a hold of the much more? Are you confident because you are in Christ? Are you just as confident? Are you just as willing to reckon? Are you just as willing to accept by faith and consider it to be true that you are righteous and therefore can practice righteousness? Step number one, you've got to admit the possibility. Step number two, you need to understand the principle. It's resurrection power accessed by faith in God's grace. Step number three, you need to practice victory. Roman number three, the practice of victory. Applying the principle. Applying that faith principle. This first, this third section. We need to understand that we must by faith apply the principle of grace that God gives us. Key verse, Romans 6, verses 13 and 14. Yield yourselves, and there we have the third key word that folks most often point out in Romans chapter 6. Number one, you've got to know the old man is dead, or you'll never be right on the, on the right theological foundation. The old man's dead. He's not messing with you anymore. Number two, you've got to consider it's possible for you to access resurrection power Number three, if you apply the principle, you will begin to practice victory. Yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God, for sin shall not have dominion over you. Do you believe that? College students, do you believe that? Children, this morning, do you believe that it's possible for you at your age to begin to experience that sin does not have to have dominion over you. Sin shall not have dominion over you. You've got to apply the principle. What kind of Christian life? I'm going to read my notes here, almost verbatim for a little bit. It's not your notes, but mine. What kind of Christian life do we have if we do not believe victory is possible? What kind of Christian life do we have if we don't believe victory is possible until we get to heaven? It's a life filled with defeat, discouragement, slavery to the very sin that God promised Jesus died to save us from. It's a fatalistic life that assumes there's no real victory over sin until we get to heaven. We're trapped in habitual sin. What kind of life is that for a Christian? These are verses that just bothered me all the time. I came to give you life, and life more. Sinful life is not a more abundant life. These things have I written unto you that your joy might be full. John chapter 2, verse 1, these things have I written unto you that you sin not. I mean, I got to a point where I was, I'm just telling you, I was angry with God. I was about that close to saying he was lying. I'm just, I'm just being transparent with you. I'm not, I'm not trying to be anybody today. I'm trying to help you. We all struggle with the same stuff. We all struggle with the same stuff. 
And when I came to Romans chapter 6 in these verses at the end of Romans chapter 6, and I found that God said that I could actually practice sin habitually. I mean, whoops, got the wrong. I knew that part. I still say that part naturally. But when I got to Romans chapter 6 and I read that I could practice righteousness habitually, that was hard. I mean, it's just hard for me to accept. Hard for me to understand how to get a hold of it. You see, this thinking, this thinking that I can't have victory, this thinking that there's no real victory until I get to heaven, this thinking that I have to be trapped by my sin breeds a doctrine that communicates incorrectly what grace is. Grace is not primarily God's provision of how constantly sinning Christians can be forgiven when they do sin. I'm glad that God does do that. Man, I'm glad for Monday night's message. He's faithful and just to forgive us of all our sins. But that wrong thinking is killing us in Christianity because grace should primarily be understood for the Christian as God's enablement, God's power, God's supernatural strength to do what I could not otherwise do, and in this case, practice victory. Don't you understand? Paul comes back to it again in verse 14. Sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. What then shall we sin? Because we are not under the law, but under grace, God forbid. Don't you understand that grace was given to avoid sin before we could commit sin? So the key word is to yield. We must yield our members to righteousness. We must do this by means of grace or the supernatural enablement of God. And that grace is accessed the same way it was when you got saved. You quit depending upon yourself and completely depend upon God's grace to do what you can't do. That grace was experienced in chapter 5 when you got saved. Abundant grace. Free gift of grace. Nothing to do with you. It was totally free, completely by God. And I'm going to throw something at you, and I don't want to get thrown off this platform before I get done, but if you need to, Pastor Van Gelden, feel free. (laughs) Ephesians chapter 2. Phenomenal passage of Scripture. You can glance at it if you want to, but you know the words. The Apostle Paul is talking to the Ephesians about what their life used to be. You were once dead in trespasses and sins, but God's quickened you. And he comes to verse 5, and he talks about that death and trespasses and sins in verses 1 through 4, and the fact that you just walked according to the course of this world, according to the, the prince of the power of the air. You were by nature the children of disobedience, the children of wrath. Verse 5, anybody remember the first two words? But God. Whoo! I mean, anybody that's not saved, and they understand that they're condemned, and they see but God. Rich in mercy, his great love wherewith he loved us, for by grace are you saved. I'm just going to ask you for a moment to enter into my mindset and ask yourself, what if you believe that same thing was true for you now that you're saved? What if you believe that same thing was true? Still trapped by some of the habits of sin, still trapped by some of the desires of the flesh, still yielding to fleshly desires, and you said, but God, 
who's rich in mercy because of his great love wherewith he loved us. For by grace I am saved. Verse 8 and 9, for by grace are you saved. Think about it as a Christian. The same principle that saved you from your sin, from the condemnation of sin, is the same principle that will save you from the practice of sin. For by grace are you saved through faith. It's not going to be of yourself. It's going to be a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, unto good works that which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. How's it going to happen? It's going to happen by grace. The same grace that saved you and the same principle of faith accessing that grace that saved you from the condemnation of sin will save you from your flesh, will enable you to walk in victory. I'm not saying that's what those verses were written for, but the principle is there. God's grace works is what I'm saying. So we need to yield. So the key issue here is obedience. The key issue in yielding is obedience. God has appealed to our mind. He's saying, you can know that the old man is dead. You can know that you are crucified with him. You can know that the old man is dead. He's buried. He's gone. You can know that you're planted. You can know that the Adam life is gone. You can know that you're crucified. The old man is crucified with him. You can consider it to be so. It's a faith word. And now he's saying you can yield. It's an obedience word. It, applies to my volition. I must choose to access by faith the grace that God has given me. It's a word that communicates obedience. The law, and I'm looking at verse 14 here, verses 14 and 15, the law, why, why does he bring up the law here? Because the law only has power to condemn. Again, and I can't get into this, but I think the law is mistaught. We know Galatians 3 says the law is a schoolmaster that brings us to Christ. And many Christians are now teaching that the law then has no further place in the Christian life. The Apostle Paul deals with it in Romans chapter 7. He says, no, the law is holy. The law is good. The law is just. But I have a whole different relationship to the law now. The law now in Galatians chapter 4 becomes my tutor and my governor. It was a schoolmaster. It brought me to Christ. Now I'm in Christ. Now it tutors me and it governs me. And I look at the law now and I say, the law says this is the nature and character of God. And I fall far short of what the nature and character of God is. The law says God is holy. The law says God is pure. The law says God is righteous. The law says God is compassionate. The law says God is truth and in him is no, no lie. And I look at the law and I feel condemned as a Christian and the law has no power to save me. It's the grace of God. But when I see the nature and the character of God and understand that I'm falling far short of what the law declares to me about God, I don't look to the law to make me righteous. I don't look to the law to deliver me from my sin. I look to the law and say, God, I need your grace again. God, I need your grace again because I'm not like Jesus. God, I need your grace again because I'm not like the nature and character of God. God, I need your grace again because I'm not there yet. So the law instructs me that I still need God's grace so that I can be more like Christ. Preachers, don't be afraid to preach the law. Uh, don't have time for a lot of stories, but 
Brother Gashke is here, and I, I admire him, though he was my assistant pastor, and I was started a church, but he, he taught me how to be a better soul winner. I would talk to people and say, are you a sinner? And everybody in Martinsville, I don't know what it's like here, but everybody in Martinsville knows they're a sinner. And I'd go on and say, well, good news, Jesus loves you. And they never wanted to get saved. Because I would not take it that next step and say, okay, because you're a sinner, do you know you're going to die and go to hell? It's tough, you know. I remember one night, and this rarely happens, but God's doing a lot of things in my life. But one night we went and talked to a lady that was living with her boyfriend. They had a child, but they had visited church. We went and visited him, and we were talking to her and asked her if we could show her how to be saved. And she said, sure. We sat down. I asked her if she was a sinner, and she said, oh, yeah, I know that. I said, do you understand? Because you're a sinner, you die and go to hell. She said, I'm not that bad. So I went to the law. I'm making a point of this. I went to the law. I said, do you love God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind? She said, yes. I didn't argue with her. I said, have you ever taken God's name in vain? Yeah. Have you ever put anything before God? Yeah, a few times. You honor your father and mother? Oh, yeah, I do that. Didn't argue with her. You ever lie? I, I knew what was coming in the law. <laughs> you ever lie? Yeah, a few times. You ever commit adultery? Yeah. She's living with her boyfriend. I said, if you break one area of the law, you're going to go to hell. She was ready to get saved. And she did get saved. Her boyfriend was in the back room taking care of the baby. He came out, told him that she'd gotten saved. I said, can we come back and show you how to get saved? And this is why you have a soul winning partner. He said, yeah, I'd be glad to have you come back sometime and show me the soul winning part. I said, how about now? <laughs> Sat him down the exact same process. Are you a sinner? Yep. You realize you're going to die and go to hell? I'm not that bad. Took him to the law. He answered some of the questions differently, but basically the same thing. He loved God with all his heart too. But he did admit he was a liar, and he did admit that he'd used God's name in vain. He did admit he was in adultery, and I said, that means you're going to go to hell. He said, how do I get saved? He got saved too. Now, here's the problem, folks. I give that illustration. We know how to lead people to Christ. Do we know how to lead them to sanctification? Show them the law. You think you're doing pretty well, preacher? Look at the law. It's your tutor and it's your governor, not so that you can become righteous by the law, but you see it and you say, God, I still need your grace. God, I still need your grace. I still need your help. Not there yet. So the key issue is obedience. We have some clear commands in verse 13. The command God gives us is, seems impossible. Stop this ongoing yielding of your members as instruments to commit sin. Second command, instead, make a decision to yield to God. It's in that context that you have resurrection life, and in doing so, yield your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. The order is important. You've got to yield yourselves to God and then yield your members as instruments of righteousness. Now, these questions are important. I ask this every time I teach Romans to college students and to my high school Bible class. How many of you are confident you were a slave to sin before you were born a sinner? 
uh, because you were born a sinner, rather. Are you confident you're a slave to sin? I know I sort of asked this question before, but not as pointedly. Are you confident you're a slave to sin? You children confident you're a slave to sin? Here's the one we get hung up on. So how many of you are just as confident you're a slave to righteousness? You confident you're a slave to righteousness? You say, I'm not experiencing it. That's what I, I'm not experiencing that. But notice what verse 14 says. Sin shall not have dominion over you. You're not under the law, but you're under grace. What then shall we sin because we're not under law, but under grace? God forbid. No, ye not. Don't you get it? You've got abundant grace. I think that's exactly what he's saying. The abundant grace is available. That's chapter 5, verses 15 through 21. The abundant grace is available. Don't you get it? That abundant grace is there so that you can yield yourselves to be servants unto righteousness. That's why that grace is there. So verse 16 says, don't you get it? Don't you know that to whom you yield yourselves servants to obey? It's in the context of the abundant grace of God. Don't you understand that if you yield yourselves servants to uh, that to whom you yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants you are to whom you obey. Some of you need to underline or circle the next word, whether. Whether. Not just sin. We all know that part of it. Whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. Don't you get it? If you will access God's grace to yield your members to righteousness, you'll become slaves to righteousness. Now, there's some here that don't like anything in reference to the word slave, but every one of us are slave to somebody or something all the time. You never cease being a slave. I think Steve Currington said it best. He said, we're all addicts. We're all addicts. Now, we may not like this terminology, but those that have been there and done that do appreciate it. Why not be addicted to Jesus? We're all addicts. We're all slaves. God be thanked, verse 17, that you were the servants of sin, but you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered. Being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. Wow, what powerful verses. God is saying absolutely emphatically we can be slaves to his righteousness. We have a clear promise in verse 14 that his grace is available. We have the purpose of grace in verse 15. Not to be delivered by the law, but rather to be delivered by that grace. And in verse 16, we have promise of slavery. Promise of slavery. Every person is a slave. And we determine what we're going to be a slave to by whether we access God's grace to yield to the Spirit of God or we fail to access God's grace and we yield to the flesh to serve sin. So questions, what are we supposed to yield? We're supposed to yield ourselves and our members. To what are we to yield? Righteousness. By what means are we to yield? We're supposed to yield by the grace of God through faith. What's the result if we yield? We become slaves. We become slaves. What's the evidence that we yielded? Holiness. I just want to ask a question. Do you, do you long for holiness? I am so glad I found some place where holiness isn't a dirty word. It's not a skewed word. It's not a misrepresented word. It's a God word. And it's a necessary word. You want holiness? So if we identify the battle correctly, 
we understand that we have the flesh and we have the spirit, diagram B. We have the Spirit of God, we're now alive in Christ, and the Spirit of God feeds on the Word of God, the flesh feeds on the world, and we've got to make a decision to understand that the old man is crucified, he is dead, and the flesh does not have to be yielded to as we, by the power of God's grace, yield to the Spirit of God. Our actions then will be spiritual, and we will be holy. I was on a trip. My wife is gracious enough to let me take a motorcycle trip every summer. I was on a trip somewhere. Tell her, I, I don't know where I'm going. I'm just getting out of here. And uh, I stopped at some park somewhere, and I was walking along a river. And the river was on my right, and I'm going on this path to a waterfall. And on my left is a tree. And there's a vine growing out by the trunk of the tree and it's running along the ground and the brilliance of the flowers caught my attention. I turned and looked at the flowers and what really amazed me is on this vine running along the ground there were brilliant white flowers and then there were totally brilliant yellow flowers. Not sort of white and yellow, just totally white and totally yellow. Later I learned that it was a morning glory vine. And I walked to that and I looked at it and I examined it and I even thought, I wonder if I could take a slip from this vine and stick it in my motorcycle saddlebag and go home and plant it. I thought, this is pretty cool. And I'd already seen some signs, uh, you know, taking vegetation and stuff from the park was illegal. And so the Spirit of God won at that point, and I didn't do that. <laughs> but I started walking down the path. And my farm boy common sense took over, and I said, there's no way that one vine can produce white and yellow flowers. It's, it's an impossibility. And I went back and looked at it again. I thought, but th there they are. And I finally went back to the source where they came out of the ground and there were two vines coming up right side by side and they were totally wound together. James talks about this. And it helps us understand. He said, you know, you got a mouth. you got a mouth that blesses God and curses men. These things ought not so to be. And our, our idea is that it comes forth from the same fountain it does. And he says a fountain can't give both sweet water and bitter. The whole point of that passage is there's two different sources. And one is your flesh and one is the Spirit of God. It's not the old man, it's the flesh. You've got to understand that the flesh has to be dealt with. And so if you understand that there's two sources, then the flesh needs to be crucified, doesn't it? The Apostle Paul said, I am crucified. I believe he was saying properly, identified in Christ, I am crucified. But the Apostle Paul also said, I die when? Daily. He said, I'm very mindful of this body, lest having preached to others, I myself become a castaway. The flesh must be crucified. We must deny it. We must yield to the Spirit of God. And so, we find the product of victory. Roman numeral 4, page 85. Roman numeral 4, the product of victory. This is accepting the position. And you might think I mean the position I have in Christ. That's not what I'm talking about. The product of victory is accepting my position. I'm a slave. And I want you to accept that just... We've already talked about it, but I want you to accept it. You are a slave. 
you are a slave. And I want you to understand that the product of victory is you can be a slave to Christ. A slave to righteousness is the fourth step in walking in victory. You've got to understand it's possible. You've got to understand that you have resurrection power in you and that can be accessed. You must learn that by the power of God's grace, you can yield your members as instruments of righteousness, and the end result is that you are a slave. The key verse is 618, being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness, and I believe there's a fourth key word that needs to be taught in Romans. I'm not trying to say I'm smarter than everybody else that's talked about Romans, but we cannot overlook this because that's the whole point of knowing, reckoning, and yielding. You must be a servant. And God wants you to be a servant to righteousness. So that's the fourth key word. You must be a servant to righteousness. Now the key issue is my desire, my habits, my holiness, my righteousness. I now am serving God, not out of duty, but out of delight. I understand Luke chapter 17 and verse 10, that as I labor out in the field for my master, I labor all day, and when I come home, my concern is not for myself. Preachers, you listen to me. Young people, you listen to me. College students, you listen to me. If you get a hold of this principle and you want to be a slave to God, when you get done laboring in the harvest field all day long, and you come home, your first thought is, what can I do for Jesus? And you go and you fix him supper. And having done all that he requires, you are what kind of a servant? Unprofitable. Because justification does not come by the law, neither does sanctification. You must delight in your Savior. He must be your passion. He must be your heart. You must long to be like Jesus. You must always be looking for ways. We must always be considering possibilities of honoring him a little bit more today. Not I've checked off a list of rules and I'm okay. So we follow letter A, a new master. We have effectively moved from duty to light. We are now have a desire to serve our father and we're filled with joy where once we uh, did things that uh, pleased him only because we had to. We now do things that please him because we have obeyed from the heart. I love Galatians 3, 23 through chapter 4, verse 5. I talk often in reference to that about having the spirit of the father. I grew up on a farm. My dad was very exacting. He was German and his way was right and it was the only way. My dad was a good farmer. He wasn't an educated man, but he was a good farmer. All the machinery was always put away. He never left anything set out in the field, and everything was greased and oiled and covered with canvases, and everything had to be parked in the same place in the machine shed. In fact, you better have the tracks in the dirt exactly where the tracks were the day before, or you'd be scolded for it. I, I'm not making this up. You know, this is true, but I'm glad for it because it makes a good illustration. It taught me some character. If my dad wanted certain hay from the hay mouth thrown down and fed to the heifers, he expected those bales to get to the heifers, not to the dairy cows. Everything was my dad's way. It's just the way it was. And as a child, you can imagine the burden, the slavery, and the spankings. Because I didn't have the spirit of the father. I was my dad's son. No question about that. I was my dad's son. But I didn't have the spirit of the father. And I can't explain how it happened, but it wasn't just night and day, but it was almost that fast. Somewhere around 12, 13 years old, I woke up one day and I wanted my dad to succeed. 
My dad didn't know any of this nonsense about giving allowance. He said, I'd give you an allowance. I allow you to set your feet under my table and feed you. I allow you to eat my food, and I allow you to sleep in my bed. That's your allowance. What more do you want? So, I mean, we worked sun up to sundown doing it my dad's way. But one day I woke up, and I just wanted the farm to succeed. I was interested in how the cows were producing. I was interested in the butterfat content. I was interested in getting the hay off the field before it rained on it. I was interested in everything that was going on in that farm, and it became a delight. I enjoyed farming. Not making it up is a true story. My dad didn't have to call me to get me up in the morning to milk cows anymore. My dad didn't have to scold me anymore. The law of my father did not change. My heart changed to get a hold of it. God's law is not going to change to accommodate the neo-evangelical mindset that we're dealing with today. The heart of God's people needs to change. And so we understand that by faith we can access the promises of God. I love Jim Van Gelderen's message on Romans chapter 4 where Abraham has been given a promise. This is not Abraham's faith in Romans cha- or salvation in Romans chapter 4. This is Abraham's need to claim what God has promised to a believer. And Abraham came to the point For he believed the promise of God, not to be saved, but to be enabled to receive what was promised. And that's why the order is important. We've been promised. We claim the promise. We understand that it's true. And so we understand that we access the promise of victory by faith. Just as Abraham accessed the promise of seed by faith, not considering himself anymore to be dead or the deadness of Sarah's womb. He knew if God said it, it had to happen. Don't consider how dead you are today. Not spiritually. Now, if you want to consider that you're dead, the old man's dead, that's fine. But I'm saying get a hold of it today. God promised you victory. It can be yours, but it's going to be accessed by faith. We can be delivered to form new habits, and we can walk in the power of the Spirit. Many of you have heard me talk about this three-point outline of admitting our sin. Rick Flanders wrote a good article in 2008 for the Revival magazine, quoting Goforth. He said, Goforth was convinced the greatest obstacle to revival anywhere is unconfessed, unrepented, unrighted sin. All hindrance in the church, he said, is due to sin. If he was right, then the powerful revival we need today is being put off by our pride, by our love for certain sin. Children, you can understand that you can have the power of the Spirit of God to yield your members as instruments of righteousness. College students, you can get this. You can admit sin today. Don't look for all the nebulous stuff. God will point out to you right now the sin of slothfulness, the spirit of gospel, the the spirit of bitterness, the deceit that you've shown towards your parents. And you can admit that to God right now. And then ask God for the fullness of his spirit. How much more? How much more would he give you the Spirit 
admit the sin, ask for the fullness of the Spirit, and then take one step. Take one step right with God and see what it's like. One step. Now, I like to make a point in reference to this, and I know my time is coming to an end, but I like to make a point in reference to this. It's amazing. In fact, let me just ask this question. How many of you that know how to walk, how many of you that know how to walk have fallen down completely at some point in your life? Come on, be honest, raise your hand. Stephen, is your hand up? Man, he messed, messed up his ankle good time. Now, now, here's the point. It doesn't matter how you fell. You might not have seen something. You might have tripped. You might have stepped out on the ice, and you might have fallen down. You might have been going down the stairs and misstepped. The point is, you fell, and never once did it occur to you that you needed to get the genetics straightened out and go back and get born again. Come on, it's good preaching right here. There's not a child in here that said, you know what, Mom, something's wrong with me. I fell down. I need to go back to being a baby and do it all over again. No, you don't. You just need to learn how to walk. Identify the problem and learn to walk. You're going to fall. Get up and walk. Admit your sin. Ask God for the fullness of the Spirit. And then apply the truths that we've talked about. And you can walk. Been preaching through the life of Elisha. And I was challenged with something, and I don't know that I ever totally got this, and maybe I still don't. But look at the end of your notes there, Deuteronomy. At the end of Elisha's life, Jehoash, identified there as Joash, but it's the northern kingdom Israel, Jehoash, a wicked king, comes to Elisha, and Elisha's about to die, the sickness whereof he's going to die, and Elisha has one last opportunity to help the kingdom. More miracles in reference to Elisha are focused on Syria than, than any other miracles. Focused on Syria. And Elisha says to Jehoash, he says, take a bow and shoot, and puts his hand on the bow and helps Joash, Jehoash focus that arrow towards Syria. He says, shoot it. He says, this is the arrow of the Lord's deliverance. He says, now take those arrows in your hand and smite the ground. And he smote three times and stopped. And I kind of thought God was being a little bit mean to be so irritated with Joash with no more instruction than that. But he knew and he understood Syria was their nemesis. Syria was a problem. But I never fully got it until I understood what Deuteronomy says. The children of Israel, when they went to worship, were told, Thou shalt speak and say before the Lord thy God, A Syrian ready to perish was my father. Talking about Abraham. Our father of faith, before he was saved, if we could say it that way. He was ready to perish, and he went down to Egypt. Sojourned there with a few and became uh, there a, a great nation, great and mighty and populous. The Lord brought us forth out of Egypt with a mighty hand. God brought us out of the world. God saved us. God redeemed us. The blood was applied. He overlooked the, the death of the firstborn. His outstretched arm 
with great terribleness and with signs and with wonders. And he hath brought us unto this place and hath given us this land, even the land that floweth with milk and honey. The children of Israel were required to pray this prayer as they worshiped God. They were to be reminded that they once were Syrians, but God had delivered them. God had set them free. God had brought them out of Egypt. God had given them a life of faith. And they had to be reminded of that all the time. And so Elisha said, you should have smitten five or six times and you would have been rid of Syria. You would have consumed them. Understand the analogy. I think I'm right here. This is just one of God's many Old Testament illustrations that he wants us to have victory over Syrian life. He wants us to have victory over the flesh. He wants us to have victory over the old life. I have people say, well, I wouldn't have any idea where to start. This is a little bit obnoxious. Shoot the arrow. I'll bet you you point it the right direction. I'll bet you you do. You know where the problem is. Shoot the arrow. And when you shoot the arrow, smite and smite and smite. Get up and understand that by the grace of God through faith, dependence upon his spirit, you can have victory over the Syrian life. Father, I pray that you'd help us. Help us to understand these truths are here because you want us to embrace them. Thank you for the privilege of teaching your truth. May your Holy Spirit confirm it with convincement in our lives today. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.